Hey friends, welcome back to the No More Silos podcast. This is Erica Santiago, and this is my podcast. It's a podcast about cultural Christianity and how we have all these silos of information. And unless you are in a particular area or focused on a particular area of history or a particular area of culture or whatever your worldview and perspective might be, you may know some or all of the history, but not really all, all of the history. And that's kind of where we're at right now when it comes to cultural Christianity. What I'm seeing in the American cultural context is something akin to an awakening or a reckoning, maybe even a reformation of sorts. And there are folks out there who would say that all of the above and then some. So here's the books that we're reading this week. Uh, We're still looking at and thinking about Beth Allison Barr's The Making of Biblical Womanhood. And the subtitle on that is How the Subjugation of Women Became Gospel Truth. But here's another silo for you. Um, Reading While Black, a book by Esau McCauley. His subtitle is African-American Biblical Interpretation as an Exercise in Hope. And our third book this week is by Ryan Reeves and Charles Hill. Ryan Reeves, I came across him, by the way, through YouTube. He has a Christian history YouTube channel. He's a seminary professor. I love his videos. I looked to see what other books he had, and I saw this one. It's called How We Got Our Bible. And I talked about this book a couple of episodes ago when I was talking about how we got the canon of the Bible, how the incredibly interesting story of how the books of the New Testament were selected in the Old Testament, how we got the Christian Bible. Um, it's a fascinating story. So go back and check out, I think it's episode seven in this season, uh, episode seven in season two, how we got our Bible. We've already talked a little bit about history, Christian history and context. That was in episode four. Today, I want to pick up where I left off, though, at the end of the canon episode, where we're talking about translation. And translation makes sense um, in talking about biblical womanhood uh, because the subjugation of women is a big part of the cultural Christianity conversation around biblical translation beyond uh, Jerome's Latin Vulgate. So when everything in the Bible was originally written either in Hebrew or Greek, some Aramaic, but that's more of a spinoff of Hebrew than uh, than anything else. And so in the fourth century, when Jerome translated the scriptures, the Christian, uh, Judeo-Christian scriptures into Latin, that was a big deal. But it was also the first time that it was translated outside of the original languages. And that's important to, to understanding Bible translation, where it begins, because that is the beginning of cultural Christianity. Before that, uh, you had the original language, and so you kind of knew what they were talking about. But once we start translating it into other languages, then there is a cultural context that is inherently infused. There's a meaning that could be lost or, or misunderstood, and all sorts of things can happen. And most people who have an issue with the Bible, their Bible, their issue isn't with the Bible contradicting itself as much as it is that they're reading an English translation that kind of screwed up the translation of the word or the word means something different to us today than it did when it was originally translated. And so we'll talk about that today. But I want to kind of also talk about as we discuss Bible translation and the background story on that is kind of how we got here. Why why that why there are folks who think that we're going through some sort of an awakening or a reformation or a reconstructing or uh, a reckoning of our faith and what's going on in the world today, at least in the American Christian context that I'm seeing, is a lot of folks talking about deconstructing their faith. Um, There are folks who are saying, you know what, what I grew up believing, I can't find it in the Bible. So I have questions. And they're looking for answers. And I'm one of those folks. That's how I got started on this journey uh, many years ago. And so a lot of folks talking about deconstructing their faith. In fact, there's even somebody out there who just 
In fact, there's even somebody out there who just uh, started offering a class on it, um, which I think is fantastic for folks uh, that want to to do that. But it's interesting because some of the books that I was already looking at, this person has kind of put it together and packaged it. And I'm like, man, why didn't I think of that first? But anyway, I've got this podcast. So Following Jesus is a life of deconstruction and repentance and renewal and relationship and transformation. We're told in scripture to love God with all our heart and mind and soul, and it takes all of that to unlearn what culture and society and the world has taught us that is inconsistent with Christ's command to love God and love people. So recently, uh, someone who's been thinking about this is uh, someone I follow on Twitter, Judy Wu Dominic, and she's been writing about her faith experience, and she articulated her thoughts on what it means to deconstruct one's faith. And she began with a definition that she found in the Encyclopedia of Philosophy, and she found this definition to be helpful, so I'll share it with you here. It says, to deconstruct is not to destroy. Deconstruction is always a double movement of simultaneous affirmation and undoing. I'll say that one more time. To deconstruct is not to destroy. Deconstruction is always a double movement of simultaneous affirmation and undoing. And she says, I suppose it's the undoing part that makes some people nervous, as if something precious were being taken apart. But as I've been reading books like Jesus and John Wayne and and, uh, The Making of Biblical Womanhood and Reading While Black, what I'm realizing is that what we're undoing and unpacking today and, and how we're discipling others, because that's really my focus right now is discipleship, what we thought was there or what we've been taught wasn't really what was there. And Jesus actually says that too. And Judy Wu Dominic um, addresses that in her article that I was looking at. She points out how in, in Matthew, uh, in the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 5, Jesus starts off several of his, uh, his points with, you have heard that it was said, but I tell you. Um, and he says in John 3, uh, you, Nicodemus, are Israel's teacher, and do you not understand these things? He's talking to the teachers, he's talking to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and his whole conversation in the Gospels, if you read all four Gospels, and I encourage you to do that, just whether you're a Christian and you're listening to this or not, take a t- take some time this week, it, maybe listen to them on the Bible app. Sometimes you'll catch the conversations better that way. But you hear Jesus asking questions and deconstructing the Jewish faith that people subscribe to. And you've heard me say this before on the podcast, there were nine, at minimum, nine different factions of Judaism going on, nine different, what we would call today, probably denominations of Judaism going on in his time when he was here walking the earth. And so what he points out to folks is, you thought you understood this, but you're so far away from what God was actually trying to get you to do in the first place. Like you just, it was a bad game of telephone. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. Jesus says this in John 4. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. And that, I believe, is where we are now. That is where discipleship is now. That is why we have no more silos, because even Jesus is saying, you get it, you don't get it, and the thing is that we're not doing what God is actually telling us to do. And some of that happens because of our English translations. In Matthew chapter 23, Jesus says, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, so you must obey them and do everything they tell you, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. And so for me, this is a great starting point, looking at the Gospels for our our talk today about biblical translation. What you think you know, or what you were taught, or as some preachers like to say, caught, to identify the things that were not intentionally taught about Bible translation, doesn't always line up with historical fact, or what is actually in Scripture if we drill down to the original language, which would be Greek in the New Testament. Actually, I found that from a discipleship and uh, mentoring perspective, this is probably the one area that I have to repeat often to deconstruct and help others to unlearn bad theology. One of the things in our ministry context at our church that, that 
happens a lot is we seem to attract a lot of folks who come from a variety of church traditions, um, as well as folks from other uh, other religions altogether, but we even the people who come in who are completely unchurched had some kind of cultural Christianity faith kind of floating about in the home they grew up in. And so there's a lot of things that have to be unlearned because people, you know, the Bible's a big book and it's it's a lot to read in one setting and digest. And so obviously there are things that people just assume are in the Bible. And we could do a whole episode just on <laughs> all the sayings that we see on memes that are accredited to scripture, like uh, cleanliness is next to godliness, that aren't actually there. After the canon was confirmed and affirmed within a couple hundred years, Latin became the language of the dominant culture and business in the Roman Empire. So it made sense to translate the Bible from Hebrew and Greek to Latin. And Jerome is known for translating what became the Latin Vulgate in the 4th century. It became the standard in the Roman Catholic tradition all the way up to the 1960s, when it finally occurred to someone that people sitting in Mass were generally clueless as to what was going on and just going through the motions. Latin was no longer being really taught in schools uh, to all the students. And so it was hard to get converts, hard to communicate uh, what God was actually saying. And so you know, speaking of connecting with the general populace, the idea that we are supposed to be reading God's word in our heart language, that is what motivates Bible translators today to make sure that people can understand God's word in the language they were raised on, their mother's tongue, so to speak. And so when we talk about the general populace, jumping from, from Latin to English here, and that's a big leap of a few hundred years, the Wycliffe Bible was the first translation into the common English vernacular. Interestingly, when Bibles were translated into English, it caused so much trouble that one early translator in, uh, to English was executed over it. I mean, it was a big deal. It was politically uh, politically fire. It was, it was not something that folks were, ex- the common folks might have been excited about it, but the establishment of power, the power structure was not. And so uh, knowledge is power. And you can't use religion to control a population if they're literate and can read for themselves. Of course, there's always those who are able to read and choose not to, and thus they're easily fooled. Uh, But what could I tell you about the history of Bible translation to English uh, that is no more silos worthy? Because that's what we're here for, right? We're here to talk about cultural Christianity and how that concerns us today. So You have Latin, and there's a lot that's been written about the Latin translation, but it literally was the de facto standard in the Roman Catholic Church for centuries. And even today, a lot of our English words are have Latin roots. So in our homeschool, I make sure my kids learn Latin um, because it helps them with math and science and music because there's so much that's still in Latin or has a Latin base. So I think things today that stick out for me the most are the stories around the English translation. Translation, um, getting so much pushback, and later the way the King James Version came to be, and how a totally unrelated uh, CW network show that's on Netflix has anything to do with understanding the historical context of it. I think I've shared here on the podcast before how I like to watch uh, sometimes the most ratchet of shows on Netflix, but they're always historical dramas, and I sit there with my laptop open and Wikipedia to get the backstory, the real story, and see where the writers like like embellished or or connected dots that may not have been there. Um, and so there was this one show that I came across that had to do with uh, the story of Mary, Queen of Scots. And it was actually quite interesting in giving kind of a cultural, con- uh, cultural Christianity context to what eventually became the King James Version of the Bible, because her son is that James. So anyway, definitely recommend reading How We Got Our Bible by Ryan Reeves, or watching his videos on YouTube on the subject. It's a rich story of how we get to the King James translation and the other Protestant translations of the Bible. And and while they paint a picture of the controversial events and people over the years, they actually, in the book, How We Got Our Bible, managed to steer clear of addressing systemic racism or sexism um, that people today are discussing with regards to biblical translation. And that is actually a 
a key issue. So it's good to know the basic history around it, the, the, the standard infrastructure of what that history is. But then we have to turn to resources like Dr. Barr's book or Dr. McCauley's book. Um, so in his book, Reading While Black, and also in an article that he wrote for the Washington Post, which I'll put in our show notes, Esau Macaulay details how the King James Version was and continues to be so prominent and influential in the historic black church. The prose is official sounding to many of us who grew up in the church as it is the King's English, right? And he observes this, he says, as a New Testament scholar, I've discovered that people of color and women have rarely led or participated in Bible translation. On one hand, this doesn't trouble me much. It is hard to mess up the story of the Exodus, distort the message of the prophets, or dismantle the story of Jesus. It is all there in every English translation. On the other, I believe it matters who translates the Bible, and that more diverse translation committees could inspire fresh confidence among Christians of color. Such a translation would allow black Christians and others to know with certainty the things that you have been taught. He's quoting Luke 1 and 4 there. What's interesting about what Dr. McCauley points out, and Dr. Barr points this out in her book as well, is you know, and, and he's a professor and teaches New Testament as his primary area of study, and I think that's important for his expertise. In the Washington Post article, he says he begins each new semester with questions from students about which translation is best. And as a Bible study teacher myself, that is a question I get all the time, too. I just tell folks, read any translation that appeals to you. But if you come across something that you have questions about, check three or four other translations to see how that was translated. Anyway, what Dr. McCauley says uh, to his new, new students every semester is this. Teaching the New Testament can be a dangerous thing. Biblical scholars can do real spiritual harm by casually dismissing the texts that students hold dear. To ward this off, I have a standard statement for students. And this is his quote. Any translation of the Bible will tell us the story of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. It will also tell you of the trials and struggle of Christian communities trying their best to live lives indicative of the king that they claimed to follow. It's almost impossible to get that story wrong. And that, I think, is something that comes through in the history of the biblical canon, which I won't revisit now, but it is the thing that comes through even in the slave Bible. Look that up. Um, the slave Bible uh, cherry-picked uh portions of the Bible. It actually removed most of Exodus and anything having to do with freedom in the New Testament. Even when the uh, folks who were enslaving Africans, the Europeans who were enslaving Africans, were trying to hide the idea of freedom uh, in Christ from uh, Africans that they were uh, claiming that they wanted to, to uh, convert to Christianity to share the gospel with, they were, they were still not able to hide all of it. And that's the thing that has still come through. Um, that's why you have uh, Harriet Tubman, who was called the Black Moses on the Underground Railroad. You still didn't, you, they still weren't able, even in those periods of, of blatant oppression, not able to hide the story of Jesus. And so the story of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and the story of the trials and struggle of Christian communities trying their best to live out that Christian life, it's impossible to get that story wrong. Because it's there if we just simply read it, even with all of the challenges with our English translations. And so I agree with his statement there. The most fascinating thing about Bible translation to me is that over the course of these 2,000 years, the story has remained the same, while the languages it's told in evolves and changes. And so when the King James Version was written, it was largely based on a previous English translation known as the Tyndale Bible. The poetry and word usage was actually already outdated from common English vernacular, but because of its beauty and flow, the people making the decisions wanted to keep it because, well, it sounded official and it sounded holy. It sounded special. 
That said, the King James Version, or KJV, has to do uh, mostly with the cultural history in England and Scotland around that time, the 1600s. But the story really starts with William Tyndale, who was born in 1494 in England. Now, to kind of put a pin in that date on your timeline, most of us know what happened in 1492. Uh, We were taught, erroneously, of course, but uh, or not completely. Uh, in 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. Here's Tyndale. He's born in 1494 in England. He's uh, got run-ins with Henry VIII as he's working on his translations. Uh, and Henry VIII was reforming the Catholic Church in England to be Catholic light, really, but not all the way Protestant. He was eventually, Tyndale was, eventually executed for his efforts because he couldn't translate the Bible into English without having a political issue with the king. And as we've already discussed, the New Testament was written in Greek. So by this time, it was obvious that any serious translation needed to start there. And so I should mention that the copies of the Greek New Testament that they were working from were from the 12th century. And this is a key detail in our brief overview because by the 19th and 20th centuries, archaeologists and historians had found copies from the 4th century. So the thing to remember about biblical translation is that it's a continuous project as we move farther away from the 1st century authors in both history and cultural context, as well as language. As they keep digging out there in the world and, and look finding new, uh, new resources, uh, or buried resources, they are consistently finding that the translations hold. But anyway, Tyndale was a gifted writer and as an English language writer. Um, nearly 90% of his phrasing is still in the uh, King James Version today. Examples include Revelation chapter 3, uh, verse 20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Or Acts 17, 28, In whom we live and move and have our being. Um, after Tyndale, though, the next several major translations were not really translations by the strict definition, but tweaks and revisions that were necessary because of cultural Christianity or denominational doctrinal differences or because because of updated grammar, like verb tense, needed to be fixed. And that's typically what is still going on today. Um, as we, as scholars get better at understanding the Greek and have understand the grammar of the Greek and also the historical context of what was going on or the references that Paul may have been writing or the New Testament writers were referring to, they're tweaking the translations. Um, it's rare now that we get a all all the way brand new English translation. It's really just a massive committee led work on making updates and tweaks. But all that said, um, that's the category that the King James actually falls into. It's a, it's a tweak of Tyndale's original work. Now, a little bit of English history for context here, because I'm sure you probably have heard about Henry VIII and his six wives. He was a Catholic king of England who wanted to divorce his first wife when they were not able to have a son because, you know, monarchies, they they're uh, hereditary. And so you need the son um, in order to make sure you've got, you know, you're going to keep going, that your dynasty is going to keep going. And so he asks the Pope for permission to divorce. And the Pope says, no. Uh, So Henry's crew around him pumped him up and said, how are you going to let some dude who doesn't even live here and is not in charge of this country tell you what you can and cannot do? This is your country. You're the boss. So Henry separated the Church of England from the Roman Catholic Church. He went on to keep trying for a son. Ultimately, he had like six wives, but it was later his daughters that would become queens of England. Why? Because his sons didn't uh, survive. Uh, It was really hard to live past five years old back then. So his daughters, Mary and Elizabeth, are the ones who went on to become queen. Um, Both historically significant for lots of reasons, but regarding Bible translation, Mary was Catholic. And Elizabeth was Protestant. So in a matter of decades, England was flip-flopping between the two, and this affected things um, on the ground with just your regular everyday people, but also politics and economics. And eventually, upon Elizabeth's death, James, who was already king of Scotland, was crowned king of England too, because Elizabeth died without an heir. And his great-grandmother, just to kind of connect the dots here, how James was in line for the throne, his great-grandmother was Henry VIII's sister. 
So kind of pulling all that history together for you. And that's what is uh, interesting about the Netflix show about James's mother, Mary, Queen of Scots, uh, because in a cultural Christianity sense, what you see in the storyline of the show is how superstitious people were back then um, and why a Bible, why having a Bible the average person could read for themselves probably would have been really super helpful. Um, I doubt that was in, you know, front of mind for the show's producers, but because I'm kind of a bit of a Bible nerd and history nerd, that's what I was thinking about while I watched it. Anyway, so here's James, thrown into the middle of a country, divided by Protestants and Catholics. This is an issue that continues in uh, in Great Britain, even to today, with uh, Ireland and Scotland and, uh, and England, and they don't, everybody doesn't get along, and James agrees to a new translation, but here's the kicker. He orders both sides to work together on it, but again, it's, it doesn't end up being a new translation. It's just tweaking what was already there, Tyndale's work. His only stipulation, though, James gives, is that he wanted the Bibles produced with no margin notes so that the theological differences were not obvious. Without commentary uh, written on the sides, it was just a Bible. And while that sounds normal to us, that was super radical back then, because Bibles in those days were often translated and copied, and then the priests or uh, or ministers that were doing the translation or scholars that were doing the translation would add commentary um, on the side in the margins. So it would be very akin to our modern day study Bibles. So the translation committee sets out to revise the existing English translations and using the original Greek and Hebrew to address and fix wording and grammar as best they could. And again, no one actually spoke like the King James version that we read today, that prose back then, even though it was Shakespearean and that time frame for Shakespeare, but Shakespeare's plays were were just that. They were entertainment. And so this wasn't the common vernacular. But the idea in 1611 was to elevate God's word beyond the common vernacular, make it sound holy, just as Esau Macaulay points out in his book, that the King James translation is held to a higher standard in the black church because it just sounds special. It sounds holy. And I grew up that way too. It just with the King James version, there's verses that I like the reading of from the KJV, because when you read it in regular 21st century English or 20th century English, it's like, it'll, it falls a little flat, you know? It's still God's word, but the idea from a discipleship standpoint is we are supposed to understand, so we don't want it just to be entertaining. And eventually that becomes an issue later on in the 20th century. But the King James Version's word choice has contributed to a great deal of our imagery of the biblical text, and sometimes the translators overstepped a little bit. One example that Reeves gives in his book is about Genesis 37. For example, Joseph in Genesis 37 had a nice coat with long sleeves. That's the literal translation from the Hebrew, a nice coat with long sleeves. But when you and I think of Joseph, we think of Joseph and his Technicolor dream coat, right? And that is actually, it's not a mistranslation, but it's more of an embellishment. And so the NIV translated as uh, ornate, um, but the footnote in the NIV says, eh, we're not really sure what the Hebrew word means, <laughs> but we're going to go with ornate because we're trying to stress that it was a nice coat. Um, the New Living Translation, it says beautiful robe, but again, the footnote um, says, it, it, we're not really sure what the Hebrew means. It's a nice coat. So how do we con- convey how nice this coat was in our modern context? Now it's technicolor. So I looked up the verse uh, reference in a cultural background commentary just to to kind of double check what I was reading in Reeves' book. And the word apparently is used only once, but Egyptian paintings of well-dressed Canaanites indicate that all of the above could be true. It could be a technicolor dream coat. Um, because sometimes we forget that life was in color back then. I think one of the the unfortunate things about black and white TV and black and white movies is that we think that before 1970, the whole world was in black and white without color. And actually, that's not the case. They had a lot of color and the color often in the paint falls off or rubs off or is washed off over time off of statues and frescoes and things. And so we, we miss that sometimes in, in context. But anyway, 
Um, so all of that could be true. But the bottom line is that Joseph got a really nice gift from his dad and his brothers were jealous. They were jealous of the explicit favoritism. Which brings me to kind of a sidebar point about Bible study and exegesis versus eisegesis. We have to be careful not to get too hung up on bringing our cultural modern context into the biblical text when we are reading, or we'll miss the main point of the passage and really just get stuck on one word. I mean, I've heard sermons preached on five words or one word and and with no indication that that's really what that word meant, or that's where the author was going. So we could spend another 30 minutes just talking about all the different words in the King James translation and the revision team uh, that chose uh, which words they chose. But one of the things that I think is important for coming out of that book, How We Got Our Bible, is that there is a continued significance of the King James Version. Um, and what's interesting about that is that while we embrace it, or we have have embraced it, the uh, King James Version was not the copy of the Bible that the original pilgrims and Puritans came over here with in the early 1600s. It wasn't, it had not been... Um, completely accepted all, all the way yet in England. And so when they left, they were using um, more of a, a, a Tyndale's version in what was known as the Geneva Bible. And of course, this had you know side notes. So the fact that every English translation after Tyndale's Bible includes much, if not most, of his phrasing is evidence in the fact that as we read historically the quotes and the phrasing of Bible quotes from uh, Puritan and, and Pilgrim writers that we can't tell the difference as in modern uh, readers or scholars from that, from the King James Version. So there's that. And, you know, one of the other things that's interesting about the King James Version of the Bible that's addressed in uh, biblical, the making of biblical womanhood that she talks about is that uh, the King James Version popularized at least 257 phrases that we still use today. 257 phrases we still use today. But she says uh, in chapter 5 when she talks about translation, but the repercussions for women was that this effort normalized the so-called universal male generic language that is still common today. Um, This is known uh, in literature circles as the false universal language. It pretends to include women, but really it doesn't. And words for men were used interchangeably in reference to kings or politicians politicians, preachers, household heads, philosophers, and even to represent all mankind when specific words for women were used exclusively for women and mostly regarding the domestic sphere. Why is that important to translation? Well, it's important in our current cultural Christianity uh, review of the Bible translations because what it set in place is a switcheroo on a lot of the pronouns that were used. And so our interpretation that went forward for the last four or five centuries of the Bible uh, tells us that it's a man's role to do something when if you look at the Greek, it is uh, not gendered. Uh, The role is not gendered. It's uh, referencing both men and women. But of course, you know, the cultural context that the King James Version was translated into, or the Geneva Bible, or the Tend- even Tyndale, um, used that a lot of that universal male uh, context. So the last stop after we talk about the King James uh, for a few moments that I want to kind of jump to is something called that I came across. And I remember looking at it going, I don't understand what the point of this was until I was reading in How We Got Our Bible. The translation history journal, uh, I'm sorry, journey for someone who was uh, named Robert Young, who felt like he just couldn't leave the poorly translated verb tenses and noun tenses in the KJV alone. Um, And almost in a like an angry rant in 1862, published Young's literal translation of the Bible. What he did was he, uh, he, he took his, his, his perspective of the American exceptionalism and American individualism, um, and he brought that to the table in along with the 
improved grammatical resources for Greek and Hebrew. And he just felt like, hey, we got some, they got some of this wrong. I'm going to fix it. And he embarked on a journey to go in and just and fix what he thought needed to be fixed. So he's changing the verb tenses from past to present and vice versa. And, and some in some cases, that potentially alters the meaning of a verse. Um, and so his legacy is one of a continuing focus on improving our translations well into our present time. And so the Bible, as the literal word of God, is a theological concept that takes shape in the late 19th century into the 20th century, and it thrives in a world of fundamentalism and patriarchy and systemic racism. And that's kind of where I turn next in our conversation about biblical translations. Because what's what we see in Dr. Macaulay and Dr. Barr's books is that there was a response or a backlash uh, in the 60s and 70s and 80s to people realizing that there was this eisegetical cultural influence in how we were interpreting scripture. Um, so the backlash from Dr. Barr's perspective is, you know, uh, focused on the feminist movement. And I'll talk about that in our next episode. Um, but in from uh, Dr. McCauley's perspective, it's the the civil rights uh, challenge. He talks in, oh, let me look it look it up real quick here. I think it's chapter, yeah, it's it's chapter two in his book. He talks about policing the empire, and he references Romans thirteen. And in Romans thirteen, the passage is often quoted by folks that uh, support white supremacy. That there's a you know, that we're supposed to obey the authorities, obey the police, whatever it is that they tell us, that they're God-ordained. And he goes back and he looks at the real theology around what we call policing, but in the Roman Empire, uh, it was the soldiers that were ever-present, right? The Roman soldiers who are ever-present in trying to maintain law and order. And so he talks about how those buzzwords and phrases, or what we call them dog whistles, kind of play out. So, it's it's interesting, like you know, we see the brothers uh, used in the translation of the Bible in English when really the passage is referencing brothers and sisters. Um, there's that challenge, and in the I guess in the early 2000s there were a couple of translation updates, or um, in the NIV in 2005 that upset some folks in 2001. Um, that uh, upset some folks where translations were published. Dr. Barr provides the history of that in her book, and I've seen it elsewhere. Uh, there are folks who, who found, took issue with the more gender-neutral approach to translation. Now, it's not that the, the approach to translation was so gender-neutral. It was actually just going back and looking at, well, did the Greek gender this word? Did the Greek say brothers and sisters? Did the Greek say she or he? Or how was that phrased? And so that is the, the challenge, because one of the things that she observes is that as a medieval historian, she says, I know that Christians translated scripture in gender-inclusive ways long before the feminist movement of the 1970s. And so when you look at the bigger context of history, and that's a big no more silos thing for me, what she points out in her book, and specifically in chapter five, is what I've been saying about uh, church history and world history in general, and even the argument... Um, about uh, surrounding critical race theory and the 1619 Project is that the white supremacist patriarchal propaganda machine has been in full effect for the last four or 500 years, doesn't want you to know that Christians were gender inclusive or that racism wasn't a thing before the 1400s and the doctrine of discovery that predicated Columbus and other explorers' efforts to quote unquote save the savages around the world and relieve them of their gold and resources. We are supposed to believe that this is how it's always 
been. And Dr. Barr points out that in 2001, a year before Zondervan published the TNIV, Crossway released the ESV, the English Standard Version, along with a slew of endorsements from evangelical megachurch pastors, musicians, and authors. And the ESV was a direct response to the gender-inclusive language debate. It was born to secure readings of scripture that preserved male headship. It was born to fight against liberal feminism and secular culture challenging the word of God. Now, if you feel that strongly about a cultural context being kind of added after the fact to scripture, the it's it's eventually going to blow up because we have, thanks to the internet today, way more resources and many more scholars coming along going, they're looking at the Greek and the Hebrew and going, no, I don't think that's what it says. And that information is becoming more available. She points out in chapter five, uh, the very beginning of it, that translations matter, echoing just what we talked about with Dr. McCauley in Reading While Black. And for women, translations of the English Bible have mattered more than most evangelicals realize. And so that's the thing that's so important to understand about Bible translation and why it is a cultural Christianity um, subject or sub-subject that I feel pretty strongly about because we're supposed to believe that this is how it's always been. But Dr. Barr points out that in medieval scripture translation and how priests were uh, gender inclusive as a way to better care for their parishioners, because here's the thing, if women didn't see themselves in the gospel message too, then why participate in your church activities? It's not for me if you're only talking to the men. In this time period, in a medieval time period, Christianity is still a new thing in Europe, and many people still held tightly to their cultural uh, and what we now call superstitious beliefs. Also, with the guys drunk in the pub every night, medieval women were not encouraged to follow their husbands as spiritual leaders in their homes. So what's changed? And that's what she talks about in chapter five. She talks about how, and she gives examples of sermons that have uh, that have uh, continued on from the medieval times, not continued on from the medieval times, but rather that we have copies still <laughs> from the medieval times uh, where she, uh, where the Middle English sermons are very gender inclusive, that they speak to everyone and uh, they're not focused on uh, this hierarchical structure um, because they see the, and don't obscure the women leading in the New Testament. They don't obscure the language um, and because historically they're not that far removed from the historical context, they see some. They're they're still aware of some of the historical references that Paul is making in uh, his letters to Timothy, in his letter to Titus, and his letters to the Corinthians that we don't see and we miss in our English translation because we don't know that history. And so we miss a lot of that context. And what ends up happening is you have these murky waters of cultural Christianity um, that exist today. And next week we'll talk about this in Jesus and John Wayne. Uh, Kristen Dumay talks about the history of how evangelical culture in the last 50 years kind of solidified some of these things that we now take for granted just as is. Going forward, and and again, I'll talk about that in a fuller conversation next week about biblical womanhood and cultural Christianity. Dr. Barr talks about this in chapter 5, translating marriage even in the Bible. And it's interesting because, in in short, the thing, and I definitely recommend, get her book, get Isama Kali's book, uh, get Jesus and John Wayne. In short, the word wife is translated the same as the word woman in the Hebrew text. And it's interesting because the ramifications of that is that in the question she asks in the book is, did did the King James uh, translators or Tyndale uh, take an eisegetical cultural approach to understanding 
the Hebrew context, cultural context of how marriage worked in the Old Testament. Like, like how did that work? And so it's, it's very interesting to, to read, and I definitely recommend that. One of the things as we wrap up talking about um, translation, I wanted to mention a translation principle that comes up with you know, comes into question with a lot of the standards in our English translations. And this is really where the toggling happens. What we're looking at is dynamic equivalence, dynamic equivalence, or functional equivalence. And so a lot of times English translators try to do something on the order of common sense. When arriving at a word or phrase that literally says one thing, but functionally means another, they are often going to choose the functional meaning. If you think about the words that have changed meaning just in your own lifetime, words that if I say, uh, I had this conversation with one of my kids the other day, my 10-year-old, I said, oh, that jacket is bad, you know, talking to my husband about a jacket he had on. And my 10-year-old said, oh, so you don't like daddy's jacket? I'm like, no, no, no. It's, you know, bad meaning good. And she looked at me like I was crazy because in her 21st century context, nobody really talks like that anymore, I guess. I don't know, except those of us who are Generation X and older. Um, So, Functional meaning matters, and it's and we can't say that in the Greek when Paul was writing or when the New Testament writers were writing that there are not words that they may have used or expressions that they use. We have to remember that translations of the Bible are generally done by committee, small or large groups of scholars who are doing their best to translate God's word from the original languages or revise existing translations as new historical data or archaeological resources become available. And as both Esau Macaulay and Dr. Barr point out, not having people of color or women at that table affects how we translate the Bible. Um, And he gives this final example, tells the example from Exodus, uh, the story of the Israelites leaving Egypt. And there's a powerful description of the crowd that is obscured by some translations. And so one of the things that he points out in Exodus 12, 38, is how the description of the crowd, if you're not a person of color, you don't study African history, uh, you may miss this detail. Uh, Nearly all scholars agree that the original Hebrew meant to highlight that an ethnically diverse group of people left Egypt with the Jewish people. This group could have included Egyptians and other ethnic groups, such as the Cushites, and this passage then highlights the African presence among the people of God from the beginning in a way that would be relevant to today's Bible readers. The translation mixed multitude isn't necessarily wrong. It simply does not communicate the power of this simple verse in a way that would be understood by those reading today. He says, if I were translating the passage, I would say that an ethnically diverse crowd went up out of Egypt, but the uh, CEB's translation of diverse crowd gets close enough. And so that's the thing that we want to look at when we think of biblical translation. And so again, when we're asked which translation is best, read the one that works for you uh, and your study time. But if you sense that something is off or it's gendered in a non-inclusive way, check out other translations. And translations, according to Reeves' uh, book, How We Got Our Bible, he outlines five families of English Bibles. There's the King James family, books that are uh, translations that are based off of the King James version, the RV family, that would uh, the revised version family, the NIV family, Bibles that stand alone, um, and the new vernacular Catholic Bibles. Those are his five categories that he talks about there in the book. In addition to the more common English translations and other languages around the world, one English translation that was recently produced is the one by the Messianic Jewish community. And what's interesting there is that they choose not to transliterate um, the Hebrew words for people's names uh, because things like Yeshua get missed. Uh, For example, Joshua and Jesus are the same name in Hebrew. (laughs) Ah, now, if you look at the book of Joshua in the Hebrew Bible in the Old Testament, does that change things for you in how you read that or, or that context or the name of God, Yahweh to Jehovah? Um, in fact, the Jehovah's Witnesses actually have their own revised version of the King James Version to su- that supports their theology. So you want to be you know, careful about that too. So if you're curious about how a word is used elsewhere in the Bible, I'd check out as another resource blueletterbible.com or just select a different translation in your Bible app to see how a verse is rendered. And 
Historically, again, scholars have worked in teams to translate or revise and update existing translations. And so there's bound to be some inconsistencies that we observe as the uh, with the evolution of language in general. And so uh, think back to high school English class when your teacher got the jokes in Chaucer's Canterbury Tales, um, and then she had to explain to the class because that 12th century English is so far removed from our modern English that we miss the joke. We don't see it as funny. And so here's the thing. Dr. Barr is a woman and Dr. Macaulay is an African-American provide a much needed perspective on the importance of Bible translation. I don't believe either one of them would say to simply throw out our Bible or throw out your King James translation that you may hold near and dear to you for sentimental reasons. What's important is to ultimately understand that if you are discipling or mentoring someone, don't shy away from this question. The question often looks like the Bible's inconsistent. No, it's not. It may be our translation needs some tweaking or you need to look at a different translation. The blog posts and Twitter and YouTube that are out there, uh, they're they're going to try to answer their questions. And so it's important for you, if you're discipling others, to learn for yourself, to be able to respond to the questions that you may have, but also that your person, the person that you are mentoring may have. Because all of this stuff that's going on in cultural Christianity, remember, God is still God. He's still on his throne and the gospel of Jesus Christ shines through anyway. Keep that in mind. So one last thing that I I found a quote on Twitter and I wrote it down, but I forgot to write out where I got it from. So forgive me, whoever actually said this, but I'm not able to give credit. But I love the way that it kind of puts together everything we've been talking about Bible translation today. Maybe the journey isn't so much about becoming anything. Maybe it's unbecoming everything that isn't you so you can be who God meant for you to be in the first place. So thank you for joining me today on No More Silos. Send your questions or comments about the podcast to uh, podcast at ericasantiago.com. Follow me on Instagram or Facebook uh, at Cultural Christianity. Remember to subscribe so that you'll uh, be alerted when new episodes drop. I've been trying to do this weekly, but that has not been working this summer. (laughs) Uh, There's way too much going on. Um, But uh, I appreciate that you've been listening. So until next time, have a great rest of your day.